trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellent podcast. I am thrilled today to speak with Hakeem Olushei, who's a Robinson professor and one of the nation's best-known astrophysicists. Dr. Olushei is a STEM educator, a multi-patented inventor, and a science communicator. He was recently the Space Science Education Lead in NASA's Deep Space Mission Directorate, where he provided strategic leadership and management for the Directorate's investment in science education and communications. He is also president-elect of the National Society of Black Physicists, a group in which I have a number of really good friends, I might add. His expertise has been featured in media outlets such as National Public Radio, National Geographic, CNN, and The Undefeated. He has also been interviewed by Neil deGrasse Tyson on his podcast, Star Talk. His memoir, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars, is now available on Amazon.com. Dr. Olu Shehi. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. President. I appreciate you having me. Well, Hakeem Olushei. Yes, sir. When you first told me your name, I was, I was like, okay, that's an interesting name because I was yeah. struggling with how to pronounce it. And I'm always interested in the rationale between African Americans and name changes. Yeah. So yeah. you were born James Plummer Jr. That's right. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about the transition. Well, I was always very interested in history. And when I was coming of age, I recognized that there was a hierarchy in my nation, right? There was a hierarchy and race was a part of that hierarchy. And it looked to me like I was at the bottom of it. And I wondered, like, how did that happen historically? So I really got into studying history. But it wasn't until I got to graduate school that I had access to Stanford's libraries. The internet was nascent at this time. This is the early 90s. And man, I devoured all of these history books. I was a changed person. I was a changed person. And in my studying of the history of African Americans, I really value freedom and I value self-determination. And so that scene in the book Roots where Kunta Kinte is being whipped and told his new name is Toby, you know, I kind of related to that experience. And I thought to myself that, you know, perhaps my ancestors went through that experience and they mm-hmm. did what they had to do to survive. Right. But someday this would not be necessary. We could determine for ourselves. So when I became in my mid 20s, I thought, OK, I'm going to change my name. But what I want to do is I want to change my name with a purpose. I made my middle name express who I am. And my middle name is Muata, it's Swahili, and it means he seeks the truth. Uh I wanted my first name to express who I wish to become. And so Hakeem, my first name, means wise. And then my last name, I wanted to be West African to honor that part of my ancestry. And I wanted to have a noble meaning to it that my progeny would be proud to have. So Olusheyi is Yoruba, and it means God has done this. Outstanding. You have a really, really interesting background. When I heard that you were the incoming president to the National Society of Black Physicists, I have a number of friends who are 
African-American physicist, Donnell Walton. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if you know Donnell. I do. And, For uh, many years. And, and Lewis Johnson. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I've known both of them since the late 80s. Yeah. So we all went to school together. And by the way, I was just at your alma mater the last two days. They told me to say hello. I was at North Carolina State University. Outstanding. Yes, yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. Everywhere I go, and I mention I'm from GMU, they always know you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but, yeah. I, but, but I'll take it. You yes. Know? This one woman was an undergraduate with you, she mentioned, and she talked about, she says you all, you're still in contact and how they missed out when you were a dean, right? They were like, we should have had him as our dean, and now you're president, and they missed out again. But they love you down there. <laughs> oh, it's a great place, without question. About how many black physicists are there in the country with, with PhDs? Is, yeah, that is a question I do not know the answer to. Right. In the National Society of Black Physicists, we have 3,000 names in our database. Uh-huh. But the thing about our organization is it is completely inclusive. Everybody is welcome to the party. So it's not exclusively Physicist. black physicists. Ah, I yeah. get it. So. A lot of them are supporters of the organization, and some of them are members that are even corporate members. So Mm -hmm. that's a cap. (laughs) So maybe half of that. I don't know. I I just really don't know the answer to that. That's interesting. That's a good question to find out. You know how many graduated the year you graduated? Well, I do know that at the undergraduate level, when I graduated, it was about 100 per year. So that way, whatever number of students your university graduated, that's the percentage nationally that you graduated. (laughs) I hear you. Yeah. (laughs) I hear you. So in 1991, Tougaloo graduated 2% of the African-American physicists. (laughs) Amazing. Well, I will tell you, Donnell and Lewis are some of my best friends and really, really good people. Our annual conference is this week, and Donnell is actually our keynote speaker for one of our plenary sessions this week. Not surprised. Not surprised. He's a great guy. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I'm going to preface this question. I am a great fan of the movie The Matrix. Yes. (laughs) And one of the things that you said is that the universe, the thing that you actually study, is an illusion. Yeah. And that the universe we perceived is not the one that exists. Right. And when I was preparing for this and I saw that, I was like, oh, man, it's got Matrix written all over it. (laughs) And so, so, so what do you mean by that? Well, man, I ponder the nature, the fundamental nature of matter, space, time, energy. And when you look at what we know from physics, the world in which we live is an emergent world. What really exists are fields, right? And so fields like electric fields, magnetic fields, gravitational fields are something we're accustomed to. They have no mass, right? And they're... They extend in space like magic, but the evidence has been around us forever. Like, for example, every electron is identical. That seems puzzling, but the reason why that is is because they're not individual. What they are are excitations of a field that permeates the entire universe that we call the electron field or the fermionic fields, right, where matter is. When we say that we're made of mass and we look at a proton, for example, the nuclear particle where all of our mass is located in our bodies and the nuclei of our elements, well, you know, we tell our students the proton is made up of these three quarks, two up quarks and a down quark. 
But if you add up the masses of those three quarks and you compare them to the mass of the proton, then what you find is that they only make up 1% the mass of the proton. So what's the other 99%? It's energy. And it seems like the only thing that really truly exists are these fields and energy. And everything else is, and maybe time, right? And everything else appears to be emergent. And so when you try to get to understanding how the universe came into existence and how it has evolved and what its fate is, you know, it's good to have an understanding of the basic building blocks of it. We get down to that fundamental level, you find that it becomes completely unintuitive, is completely unlike our sector in which we live, that's what we call it. And so that's why you have top physicists talking about parallel universes and strange exotic matter and different particles because once you know what really is, these wild sided ideas are not that wild anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, all I can say is you just went deep. You kind of open this thing up for questions in all sorts of areas. So I'm going to go there. Uh, you, you know, right. you, you've kind of given me permission. All right. All right. So I was very impressed with your recent essay mm. in the Washington Post in yes. which you talk about the possibilities of extraterrestrial life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You wrote that the idea that there is extraterrestrial life in the universe is incredibly important to you. So. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Right. I get the premise of the argument, and, and I want to say yeah. that conceptually, I actually agree with you. Yes, yes. There is no possible way that there is not just intelligent life, right. but multiple facets of it. Can yeah, you yeah. help people understand just the sheer volume of right. the possibilities of life and what we call our universe and beyond. Oh, yeah. Well, the first thing is what I would call the numbers argument, right? right. So we live in a galaxy of about 400 billion stars. Right. And what we know now is that pretty much planets and planet formation is a side effect of star formation, like the leftover residue becomes the planets. So that means that every star likely has multiple planets. So that means if you have 400 billion stars, you're talking about you know, over a trillion potential planets in a single galaxy. And then when you realize that there are estimated to be two trillion galaxies in our entire observable universe, then the, the idea that we're the only one seems on just the basis of the numbers to be kind of ridiculous. But let's take That's it a step exactly. further. And I'm going to call this the easiness of producing life argument. Now, first thing is, understand that the universe has to be sufficiently old for the chemicals that are the foundations of life to even exist. In the early universe, all we had was hydrogen, helium, and some lithium. And so it took two generations of stars to build up the carbon, the oxygen. So our sun is a third generation star. And that is perhaps the first generation of stars that are capable of having planets with life. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at how life started on Earth, the surprising thing in comparison to life on Earth today is that it starts in the absence of light and the absence of oxygen. And so it appears to me, if that's the case, then what are the fundamentals that are needed to get life started? You need fluids and the right thermodynamic conditions. 
Now, let's take another piece of data as early as we can look into the Earth's history because of plate tectonics. Our surface gets recycled. Right. So we don't have four point five billion year old rocks on the surface of the Earth. We do have three point eight billion year old rocks and life is there. And then in these zircon crystals, they find evidence of life ratios of carbon isotopes going back to four point two billion years. So life gets started really quickly, but it's simple life. So that says to me that simple life is probably ubiquitous in our solar system and in the universe. Oh, that's amazing. So that means that on a large percentage of planets, there's some form of life. There could be if they have the fluids and the right right thermodynamic conditions. Now, but here is where Earth is special. If you look at planets that exist, planetary bodies, they typically come with two types of atmospheres. Zero atmosphere and a big, thick atmosphere like Venus or the moon Titan. If you lived on one of those planets, you wouldn't even know that stars exist. So one of the biggest mistakes of sci-fi to me is that whenever they go to another planet, they have this transparent sky just like we do here on Earth. That is so unusual. Our atmosphere is nearly non-existent. Is so thin, but it's sufficiently thick that it, along with our strong magnetic field, block the radiation. But what this means is, instead of having a thick layer of miles of ice over our fluids or thick miles of clouds over our fluids, we had a transparent window. So for four billion years, it was soaked in light. And eventually that early life learned to use that light for energy And as a result, they produced oxygen, which killed them off. But just like we can develop antibiotic-resistant bacteria, eventually they became oxygen-resistant. And now that you can use oxygen chemistry, which is so much more favorable energetically, you can finally have a Cambrian explosion. But it took four billion years for that process (laughs) to unfold, right? I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. So I think that... Simple life, yes. Having a Cambrian explosion, if you have sunlight on your surface. We know you get it that way. And so since it happens here on Earth, it's likely to happen elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, but, Mars Mars has a, an atmosphere that's thin, right? But it's too thin, and there's no magnetic field. So radiation penetrates two meters into the ground in Mars, right? Ah, yeah, yeah, you're not going to last long on Mars. But now, once you get macroscopic multicellular life, I think that is just a piece of cake to get intelligence out. That's going to come about naturally because we have all these sensors and we have this thing we call the brain, right? And, and so, you know, we're not the only ones with that, right? And, and so I consider intelligence, I use two factors, problem solving, which a lot of birds are really good at, even some insects and bugs like spiders. But also, do you look in a mirror and say, hey, that's me, right? We know orcas, chimpanzees, the, the great apes do that. So I think intelligence will be ubiquitous on planets that are bathed in light. But will there be advanced technological civilizations like us? Now, that is the one that's rare, the rarest. Of course, it exists since it exists here. It exists elsewhere. But what I like to say nowadays is we are the advanced aliens. Everybody's looking to come (laughs) to Earth. We're already here. (laughs) No, I hear you. But the reality is our mere existence, by definition, means that it's possible for other advanced life like ours, maybe even more advanced, to exist. And then you take it one step further, right? 
recently released Navy videos right. of what the U.S. government classifies yeah. now as unidentified aerial phenomena. It's like they right, had to right. come up with another acronym. Right. <laughs> we <laughs> had UFO. Why did you go? What, what point? Oh, anyway, I'm not going Listen, there. you know what? I'll tell you something that happened a decade earlier. Okay. The word alien became a bad word in television. Well, I know why that was. Have you seen the movie Alien? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come yeah, on, right. man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, you want no parts of that bad boy when it, right. comes, when it comes down. No. You, you just, just don't want to have to deal yeah. with it. When okay? you got acidic blood, you're, you know, you get a, yeah. I, I, I let you pass by. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So the Navy recently released those videos, yeah. and I'm sure you probably got called to talk about it. Yeah, um, certainly did. And you, you had those Navy pilots. I watched a 60 yeah. Minutes episode uh, with the Navy pilots on there, and they're like, look, <laughs> this is nothing that we ever seen before, yeah, and we yeah. followed it. We, right. we, didn't, <laughs> right. we, we didn't just see it and then go back and say, oh, we saw something interesting. Yeah. We followed it. And then it took off, and it moved so fast that we were like, whoa. When we finally found it again, it was 60 miles away from us. So when you hear that, and these are pilots, and then they said, well, they told us we couldn't say anything about it for like 20 years, and now we can talk, right? Yeah. When you see that, so so what do you think of evidence like that? Yeah, well, I tell you, you know, I did go on the air a lot talking (laughs) about that over the summer. And the thing that was funniest to me is because, you know, I was applying my normal physicist skepticism. (laughs) And, and, you know, (laughs) the social media went crazy. I'm in the center of the conspiracy. Oh, you know, he's He's part of them. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, like, now me? I'm the man? I'm the, you know, I'm the. (laughs) Exactly. But, but, you know, that type of data. It's one thing to say, I see a technology I don't understand, and then it's another to assign an origin to it, right? And so unless it informs you, hey, here's where I'm from, how do you assign that origin? Okay, someone says it's an alien, I say it's elves from the core of the earth. The point is, there is no distinguishing observation. You know, one thing that struck me about those pilots is none of them showed fear, Right. You would think that it was some otherworldly. Wait a minute. Come on. Think about this. Yeah. All right. You grew up in the hood. I did, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you go into a community. Yeah. And there's this big, mean looking guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you little bit yeah. trepidation when you walk towards him, right. but you get close yeah. enough, <laughs> and he waves at you and gives you a Twinkie, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's not so bad after all. Exactly, <laughs> right? And when these, uh, you know, if you listen to the pilot's yeah. description, right, when right. these aircraft came up to them, oh, I approached didn't see that. them, yeah. yeah, the aircraft approached them. And then let them follow for a while and then yeah. took off. Right, right, right. You yeah. kind of know that they're probably not hostile, even if. Right. Right. And so I, I understand why they probably were not fearful. Right. And, you know, and then the other piece is this. Look, if you can do all of that, whatever you got. <laughs> well, that's not an <laughs> assumption it, to make. You know, nah, I don't, I don't whatever you a, got is probably a lot bigger than what I got. I don't buy that assumption, right? Okay. That's one thing that uh, Stephen Hawking argued. Yeah. But you know, I look at it like he's this. a pretty smart guy too, right? Yeah, but still, <laughs> he's not as smart as me. So, <laughs> listen, if you I want, love listen, it, I love it. I'm the look. If you were waiting for me to say LeBron and Michael <laughs> Jordan are better basketball players, or Stephen, it's not happening. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like you said, I'm from the hood. I'm not. Exactly. 
Exactly. You got to beat me. That's right. You got to show me, LeBron. So anyway, he, um, you know, he, he said that, right? You can assume there'll be more advanced. But think about it like this. When Europeans first made it to the shores of North America, mm-hmm. they didn't show up in a modern destroyer, right? They showed up in a wooden ship barely making it so the thing about aliens like if you look at the physics of the situation <laughs> wait a minute I'm sitting here thinking <laughs> that is not a good example because we know what came next what, what are you I know, talking about I know I was hoping we, I was hoping I didn't trigger that thought in anybody's like, mind wait a, wait a minute I know uh, that that's a terrible example but it didn't work out good for the people they were coming out. to visit I was just right, talking right. about the state of technology <laughs> yeah, okay I hear you right, I right. Hear you. But, but the thing is we have this idea based on science fiction, right? That, oh, the aliens are going to come and conquer. And so the first thing is, is that moving through space requires energy. Well, let me change, you know. Wait, wait. If you're in motion, on, you'll already continue in motion. But if you're right. moving super fast, it took you a lot of energy to get there. It took you a lot of energy to get there, but yeah. it doesn't take you as much to maintain it. Right, and it doesn't. But you, it takes you as much to stop once you arrive at your destination. Based on our understanding of exactly. energy and how it works. Exactly. And right? of space. Because the other thing I'm going to say is that the cost of going, there's nothing you can get once you arrive that justifies the cost of going. So I ask myself, if aliens are going to show up, why would they be showing up? It wouldn't be to conquer or looking for resources. It would be something like that movie uh, where the aliens were in South Africa, like District 12 or something like that mm-hmm. it was called. And so, you know, they're going to limp in. The only reason they left their plan is because they had to. You know what I mean? And, and, and if they are that advanced, they're going to know, listen, we are our macroscopic multicellular animals. We were preceded by single cellular animals that are really running things, you know, bacteria and fungi and archaea. And if we step on this planet willy nilly, their single celled organisms are going to take us out. So we better send an envoy and we better do this carefully so we don't kill them and they don't kill us. Right. right. They're not just going to jump down here. Your notion is that if they're smart enough to get here, they're smart enough to know what to do when they got here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I, or, yeah. I, again, Depending, I hearken like back to your European argument. Okay. Let's, well, let's, well, let me give you going. this one. Let me give you this. Let, <laughs> let's, let's, look, let's talk about what they're likely to be like. Okay. So most of the planets that we see are not Earths like our Earth. They're what we call super Earths. Mm-hmm. They're much more massive. You know, the thing about a planet That's right. is That's that as you add mass, it doesn't just get bigger Gravity is harder, right? Yeah, exactly. So it crunches itself down further, which means gravity will be increased even more. Mm -hmm. So that means that whatever beings, if some intelligent, technologically advanced species exists on these planets under that strong gravity, strong gravity means, number one, they're going to be really strong themselves. And number two, they're going to be short. You can't grow too tall in super strong gravity. So I always imagine little two-foot-tall Incredible Hulks. (laughs) <laughs> right? So that's who the alien is that's coming to get you. Okay. I hear you. We're getting whooped by Ant-Man. All right. That's I right. get it. That's right. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the physics of Ant-Man are so wrong. <laughs> but Marvel is really typically good about keeping the physics intact. Like, for example, when Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk, where does the extra mass come from? Right? I used to read Marvel Universe back in the day. Mm-hmm. These This set of comics they put out that explained every character and every power. And they would say, oh, you know, the mass comes from another dimension so they're you know they're taking physics conservation laws into account you know so i hear you yeah i hear you so you think they get ant-man right (laughs) ant-man doesn't ant-man doesn't make as much sense not at all (laughs) 
I, I take it that this is probably in your life, right? Yeah. The question you're probably asked as an astrophysicist more than any other, right? You're asked about yeah. life, I, I would presume. Yeah, life, black holes, time travel. That's <laughs> Those are the big three. But that would be the case if you were Carl Sagan yeah. or Stephen Hawking, yeah. and all, they're all going to talk to you about those kind of things. That's right, yeah. But you actually yeah. got another dimension, uh-huh. right? <laughs> and so let's talk a little bit about your life story. Okay, all right. right? Yes, yes, um, sir. You got roots in some tough neighborhoods oh, yeah. around the country, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, here's what I've learned. Yeah. If the word ward is at the end of it, <laughs> it it's a tough neighborhood. Yeah. You know, I, I've never heard the word ward associated with, oh, it's just a great utopian place to live. That's right. You know, yeah. so yeah. Houston's third ward. Yeah, yeah. New Orleans, yeah. ninth ward, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. Rural Mississippi and South yeah. Central Los Angeles, That's right. right? Yes, yes, sir. And uh, when you call these places out, I hearken back to my upbringing and growing yeah. up in New York City and yeah. and experiencing that. I kind of know what it is to come from a tough neighborhood and yeah. all the things you have to do. And when you were yeah. explaining looking up at the stars because that's kind of how you negotiated. You, you couldn't always look up at the stars because you needed to pay attention where you were. Cause that's you, right. Because you had to negotiate your way through the neighborhood. That's right, yeah. I understand that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You even say that some of your relatives were part of, you know, Crips. the Crips. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about your upbringing and maybe talk a little bit about what was that spark or time? When did you, uh, for lack of a better term, transition to where you knew you were going to pursue a different path outside of the options that were available to you in those communities? What's today's date? (laughs) (laughs) I got you. Yeah, it's interesting because there's my passions and my interests, and then there's navigating real life practically and knowing about education and careers and those sort of things. So for me, it was about the passion and the curiosity first. My mother was an avid reader. Now, neither of my parents graduated high school. My father dropped out of school when he was nine. He was illiterate until he was almost 30. My mom dropped out of school when she was 16, and so did my sister, and so did my mother's mother. All three of them dropped out of school at 16 and pregnant. So what happened is when I was a seven-year-old, my mother bought me these books that had my name in it, my sister's name in it, and my best friend at the time, who was her best friend's youngest child, this guy named Darren Brown, who grew up to be the second highest ranking African-American in the U.S. Navy submarine fleet. And he, you know, and then he went on to be a captain and ran the base at Ames up there in uh, San Jose. So he had somewhat of an intellectual bent to him. And he was two years older than me. So, you know, I was trying to keep up with this kid. I remember when I was eight years old, he taught me chess and everything. You know, we would do these crossword, excuse me, in the newspaper, they'd have like these chess games that we would Mm -hmm. replay together. And and both our mothers would do Dale crossword books, but they would only do the crossword puzzles. And there was a bunch of other puzzles in there. So he and I would do like the logic problems and crisscross. And what we didn't know was that we were practicing logic. Yes. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And you know, the same thing, playing bid whist and all. We're killing the grown folks because we're thinking five moves ahead, you know? That's right. Yeah. And so what ultimately happens is... To me, I find that the big thing was when I discovered adult books at the age of nine. So I was there in rural Mississippi. So I I moved every year growing up. There was a decade from the age of four to 14 where I didn't live in the same state two years in a row Mm -hmm. and moved several times in, in some years. And so I was in Mississippi living on a farm. And once the winter hits, 
there's not much to do, right? My job, of course, was to get up in the morning and make the fire and empty the chamber pot, <laughs> you know, believe it or not. <laughs> I had to slop the hogs, right? It was right, all, right, yeah, right. yeah, I love you know, that I stuff. I hear you, I hear yeah. you. Yeah, and so uh, I, I love it looking back on it. The reality is you wouldn't love it now either. <laughs> that's right, that's right. You know, I would tell my buddies in Mississippi, I was like, hey, y'all, let's go haul one more load of pulpwood just for the good old days. And they're like, no, right? But uh, exactly. yeah, so, so what happened, though, is everybody was talking about this book. And there was a copy in the house, and it was called Roots. And I was like, yo, let me check it out. I'm bored out of my mind, you know, in the evenings. And so I started reading this book, and it just captured me. And it taught me that I don't need pictures in the books. If the books themselves are well-written, the pictures in my mind are even greater. And I was filled with different emotions. And so that really impacted me. And because my childhood was so violent, you know, I felt a certain way about humans, right? I felt like it ain't safe. Right. And so what I think happened with me is that we are social animals that are built Mm -hmm. to bond. Mm -hmm. And I ended up bonding with books. I found humans dangerous. (laughs) So, you know, I'm going to avoid them. But these books over here, they're pretty awesome. You know, it's funny because every time I am reunited with someone from my childhood, whatever, that's what they talk about. They talk about two things. They talk about me being a little boy with a deep voice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the fact that no matter what was going on, I always had a book over in the corner, you know, reading my book. Yeah, yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when it came to education, I lived in those tough neighborhoods. And it was when I got an IQ test when I was 11 years old that suddenly in school they looked at me differently. And because the level of expectation wasn't very high, pretty much all I had to do was show up and I'd get an A. You know what I mean? Now, what I did do is I'd get my textbooks and I'd read them, devour them in the first two weeks and never touch them again and just be disruptive in class. Yep. <laughs> you know, I would do yep. I know all the components. It? It, it's, it's interesting because I did very similar kinds of things. Yeah. Didn't necessarily have the same problem with my oldest son, who was really smart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but my youngest son, he started doing the same thing. But he was taught to think by me, right? So right. he had a different level of thinking, yeah, right? And yeah, yeah. one day he just came home and he just said, this stuff is too easy for me. Mm. I need to be doing something else. Yeah. You <laughs> know what? Just, and I couldn't, as a kid, I never really could articulate it mm. in that way. Yeah. But yeah. he did. He did. And yeah. when he did, I was like, oh my goodness. Right. We got to get you something else. You, Challenge. You got to, because <laughs> yeah. if not, you're going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know the routine. And let me tell you, my son, my son, he's 16 now. In middle school, he said to me, he goes, dad, because you know, same thing, taught by me, right? right? So this kid completed algebra one at seven, algebra two and trig at nine, started uh-huh. calculus in. So he tells me in middle school, dad, I feel like a god among peasants in math class. <laughs> I'm like, dude, that's going to get you in trouble, that attitude that, right there. That's going to get you in a lot you of better, trouble. You better work because <laughs> you have a head start, but they're going to catch you. And if you're not steady working, you know, you're going to feel like a peasant among gods. <laughs> a peasant among gods. I'm a god amongst peasants. <laughs> That's deep. That is yeah, deep. Yeah. But, you know, I tell you this. When he was like a four-year-old, five-year-old, my mother said to me, she goes, you know what? I think he's smarter than you are. To which I replied, no, the heck he ain't. His daddy got a Ph.D. Neither one of my parents graduated high school. It makes a big difference. So, for example, I don't know if you had this experience. When I got to graduate school, three of my 
fellow graduate students in my research group of six people, their fathers were PhD physicists. That's right. That's right. And they were ahead. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. They, they cheated. That. They cheated. Right. <laughs> and so and so my youngest is fluent in Mandarin. Wow. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was fluent in Mandarin when he was in high school. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's going to be smarter than me. He should be. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be but, way, way he, more he, educated for but sure. But he should be right? because he should be. Yeah. I'll put it to you like this. People say, oh, your, your son's an engineer. That's amazing. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm like, would you think it was amazing if LeBron James's kid couldn't play basketball? Right. Right? Yeah. That's kind of the family business. He right. played basketball. You, exactly. you know, you, he better be That's good right. at basketball. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I'm an engineer. Yeah. My yeah. kid should be good in those things. They're going to bump into experiments and stuff around the house. It's, right. You know, they're going to yeah. C code on my computer. They grew yeah. up with it. So, of course, so my, they're going to So, learn. it's funny. My 16-year-old son, he said to me, he's taking his first physics class in high school. He's like, Dad, I feel like I've been preparing for this my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> Just yep. living in the house, right? Because who's right. coming by and who, you know. It, That's right. Yeah. And who you're talking to and what right. are you seeing yeah. with other students and in the lab and all yeah, that. They, they grew exactly. up around all They this grew stuff up around it, yeah. And, you know, I say that, you know, when I grew up, my adults taught me what they knew to survive in the world in which they lived in. And none of that stuff would get me into Harvard, but it did not mean that they were intrinsically less intelligent or less talented, right? It was just a different education. And so that's why I'm so about educating the working class. I get that, but you touched on something else there. And, and yeah. I don't know where this podcast is going relative to the audience. <laughs> they got to hear it. But you touched on something there. Yeah. They taught you survival skills, right? right. And, and my parents did too yeah. with me. The reality is those survival skills translate. Mm. They work in the hood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And once you really understand yeah. the mechanism of adversity, winning, right. losing, how this thing works, yeah, yeah, they work in the laboratory, yeah. <laughs> they work in the boardroom, right. Right. <laughs> they work yeah. in just about every single environment because yeah. it actually comes down to human interaction and human dynamics, exactly, and it that does. translates. And it so, does translate. so there are lessons there. Yeah, there are lessons absolutely. to be learned. There are lessons to yeah. be learned from everybody. I, you know, yeah. I carry all of those lessons right. with me. You've got an organization and you all have been working towards executing something big challenge that's in front right. of you and your org and you're working to solve a big problem. Could be a major issue. Could be the issue that we were dealing with when, when we uh, ran into the COVID issue right. early on, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you put together this great plan. Mm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reality is that you got a great plan, but when that plan meets reality, oh. it's not going to work in how you respond. See, those lessons of life that came from my earlier life, right? Right, right. And I couldn't figure out a good way to yeah. put it into words until Mike Tyson, when he had lost the fight to Evander Holyfield. <laughs> I know, I get what, yeah, and I know he bit his yeah. ear. Yeah. And they asked Mike Tyson at the end of that fight, Mike, what happened to you out yeah. there? Why did you bite his ear? Did you not have a plan? And he yeah. looked at him strange, and he said, yeah, sure, I have a plan. 
He said, everybody got a plan until he hit you in the mouth. That's right. <laughs> right? Exactly. But that is so true yeah. in organizations because you plan to do things. You got this directive or even students yeah. that are working on a problem. Oh, yeah. They've done all of these practice and then they get into the exam or the real problem comes to them and it's something there that's different and how you respond mm. how your training comes in yeah. to help you get around that mm-hmm. actually dictates if you're going to be a success or not that's right it just translates yeah yeah you, you know you, you get what i'm saying i absolutely get what you're saying when people ask me about my resilience and grit you know i point out that when people would doubt me and tell me this isn't for you my response was always i'll show you Right. Oh, you think you're better than me or you think I'm less than I'll show you. Right. right. But as I became the older person, the mentor, you know, I realized that most people do not respond that way. A lot of people, they will be crushed when you tell them that. And so that's one of our big challenges. You know, if you have an environment where you are about educating, you are about uplifting. You know, when students come in, virtually everybody is insecure because you're looking at the people that have been in it longer than you and they, you know, they got it figured out. The professors all seem brilliant and you might be doubting and questioning yourself. And all it takes is one professor to say, yeah, maybe this isn't for you. And that person can be crushed. And oh, I've seen it happen. Yeah, I've seen hundreds it happen of times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I've also seen that same grit that you talked right. about. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just students in the classroom. It's no. in every single walk of life. Right. I've experienced it in every single yeah. position I've taken. Mm. Every single one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's always a question on whether you can do including right. this one. Now, at some point in time, it actually becomes for me. Yeah. I wait for it. I'm like, oh, right. so I'm looking. I know it's <laughs> yeah, coming. It's coming. That's right. Wait for right. it. Wait for it. Oh, right. there it is. Okay, yeah. I'm at home now. I know how to operate because you don't think I'm going to be successful. So I actually know how to make this work. You know, I and I know you know. Me. And I know you I know. I thought what I'm it feeling. was just me. I thought right. it was just me. I thought I was the only one who was strategic <laughs> in these ways. Because, like, I'll, I'll give you another example. So physics is hostile field oh, without question to everyone. It doesn't matter if you, even if your father and grandfather were physicists, it still ain't easy on you. But when you come from a background like my own, academics sometimes has a sort of elitism in certain types of organizations. But physicists, oh, man, do they ever have a case of elitism? And so one of my mentors, when I was a postdoc, told me, he said, listen, when you give a talk, only speak 10 percent of your knowledge. Hold the 90 percent in reserve. <laughs> right. And but what I would do is I would take the strategy a step further. The areas that I was strongest in, I would gloss over those to allow them to think I was weak in those areas. And then when they start questioning me, you know, in physics, when we question you, it's typically not to gain understanding of something we didn't understand. It's to show how brilliant we are and how I'm greater than you. Right. And so what happens is when they ask me these questions in these areas that I've set them up to ask me, you know, I'll pause and think, act like I'm getting my thoughts and then slowly unroll it. And the way I think of it is sort of like this thing that boys do, right? When you're like in middle school or something, you know, there's some guy, y'all got some sort of tension between you and then you have a fight. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. after that, you're best friends, you're right? Best friends, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that same thing. Like now that I'm more senior and people know who I am, they see me coming. I can't play that game anymore. But when I was a junior person, you know, I had to strategize. And, you know, I would lead people to underestimate me. Let yeah. me tell you something 
we'll talk offline. You're not at the end of that rope. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 oh, <laughs> there, believe there's, me, I know. There's more, there's more. <laughs> no, <laughs> without, without, without question. There's always more to do. Always uh, more. Where yeah. folk will look at you and debate. It's interesting because I have a whole schedule of questions that I'm supposed to ask and engage you with. Instead, <laughs> we had a conversation. Yeah, and I just threw that out of the window. I do want the audience to hear this, though. You have a great story about how you dropped out of college. Yes. And got a job yep. as a janitor yeah. at a hotel making $4 an hour yep. and eating the guest leftovers. That's right. right. Yeah. So I'm going to stop there and just let you take it the rest of the way. Yeah. The timing of it was really interesting, too, because what happened with me was my first two summers of undergraduate, I was homeless. Now, let me qualify that. I was not living on the street. My first summer, I ended up living with this guy who turned out to be actually insane, like literally. Like, I, I, and then I had to leave out of there and I couch surfed. And the second summer, a different strategy. And at Tougaloo, we did not have a summer school or anything <coughs> like that. So the upper class dorms were just sitting vacant. And so if maintenance was working in one of the dorms, they would turn on the air conditioning in that dorm. So that second summer, I would break into the female dorm, the upper class female dorm, and just sleep on a bare mattress in an area of the dorm where, you know, I knew maintenance was not working. Right. So there's one particular morning, the guy who I graduated with in 1991, his name was Lorenzen Dunbar. He's since passed away, but we were the two physics majors to graduate from Tougaloo in 1991. He worked at the admissions office, and this is before cell phones. So what had happened is the University of Georgia had called requesting me and requesting my social security number. And so what happened was I had been accepted into a research experiences for undergraduates that I had not applied to. And the reason it came about was because they got their grant late in the year and they called professors they knew and asked them to recommend someone. And they called this professor, my chemistry professor, Richard McGinnis, and he recommended me. But I didn't have money to get there and they weren't paying my way. So I told Professor McGinnis, hey, you know, it doesn't matter. Thank you. But, you know, I'd have no money to get to Athens, Georgia. So he purchased my Greyhound tickets to get there mm -hmm. out of his own pocket. And I get there the you, first day. You, you pay him back? I don't recall. <laughs> but whenever he you, calls me, I answer. No, I get you. I get you. You pay, you pay it forward? I pay it forward, absolutely. Yeah, and, right. I, and I pay off in service. You know, I don't no, charge no, no, I get it. anyway. I anything, get it. yeah. So anyway, what happens is my research advisor, this guy named Michael Duncan, he's like, yeah, you know, you're going to need to access the building. So there's a key to the building, the key to my office, the key to the lab. And I nearly fainted on the spot. Growing up in the hood, young black dude, you, you don't get the key to nothing. You right? don't get the key to nothing. By definition, you are not trustworthy. That's right. And this dude just gave me the keys to the building. And then at the end, they're telling me how great I did. And I'm like, wait a minute. They're judging me on merit? And so I'm thinking that, oh, this research thing is pretty cool. And what do I do? I go back to Tougaloo College. I was involved in a criminal lifestyle at that time. And my life was going horrific. I was failing all my classes. And I thought, you know what? I better drop out of college because if I ever want to come back to college and get financial aid, I can't let five Fs or whatever it is on my report card. Mm -hmm. So I dropped out. And then I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this life of crime. I found myself, as I say, looking down the stupid end of too many gun barrels. And it would get worse than this year. But what I ended up doing 
is I dropped out and I got a job that I could get. We were in a recession, so I get a job working as a janitor at the hotel near Tougaloo College. It was the Ramada Renaissance on County Line Road. And what happens is, is just like you say, I was making $4 an hour. I was only getting like 20-some-odd hours a week. I could barely pay for my rent and gas, and I would eat by eating people's leftovers when they had room service. But then my big break arrives, <laughs> or so I think, when the bellhop gets fired because a bellhop can get a hundred dollars in tips in a day yeah. right i was barely making a hundred a week if i made that so i applied for the bellhop job and basically the manager of the hotel tells me that the head of housekeeping where i work gave a bad recommendation so he couldn't promote me but he wanted to right a gentleman named fortune jobert and i think to myself i can't go from janitor to bellhop I'm going back to college. <laughs> no way. I gotcha. Yeah, I, I, you know, this is my life. You know, for me, I now see the value of education. Right. <laughs> you know, I, if I get so, education, so that was your that yeah, was your moment. That was one of my moments for right. sure. That was a moment when it became a matter of life and death for me. That's education right. did. Yeah, I agree. Because I I saw that. So in that point, you said this education thing's got to work out. Right? It, yeah, this is all I got. This is it. I have to make this work. The alternative was just unacceptable. Outstanding. No, this is. <laughs> uh, now, long story short, from yeah. there you go back. I go back, and immediately upon going back, three graduate students from MIT show up. Cynthia McIntyre, A. Akut Bach, who's now a Morehouse professor, and a gentleman named Claude Poo. And what happened is... Cynthia was about to graduate with her PhD in physics from MIT. She'd be the second African-American woman in history after, after Shirley, Shirley Jackson. Jackson. Yep. yep. And so she raised money from the deans of physics and engineering to start this new conference called the National Conference of Black Physics Students. And so she shows up on Tougaloo College campus and Jackson State campus and said, hey, let us tell you about this career called physics. Now, by the way, I had just started taking my first physics class. Mm -hmm. And what I did not know yet was that... <laughs> I was really good at physics. I could just show up for the exams and I'm setting the curve because I had done so much for fun as a kid, right? All those logic problems. I had discovered Albert Einstein at the age of 10 right. and taught myself relativity. And I'd also taught myself how to program. So I ended up winning first place in physics in the Mississippi State Science Fair in 1985 because I wrote programs that simulated relativity, right? So it was through that conference that I learned that, yeah, there's this thing called graduate school. Here's how you get in. Here's what happens when you get there. Here and, and, are the and, and options. Then, and then, and then, when did you find out that they pay you? At the See, same conference, me, they pay they, you to go. Right? <laughs> Not only you don't pay us, we pay you. Right? That's that. That was like an epiphany for me. Oh, big time! When somebody time. said they pay you to go to school. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, I won't have to do all these jobs anymore. Yeah. You know? And you know what? I've been working. I just get to think, and I get paid. Right. Oh, wow. I've been working in one way or another since the age of thirteen. Right. right? Working and hustling, and so I'd make like three k, five k a year. So when I started getting my graduate school acceptance letters. The first one I got was from LSU, and it was like 11000 mm -hmm. Oh, man. Couldn't believe it. $11,000? Oh, my goodness. That's almost $1,000 a month. Unbelievable, right? <laughs> then I get my Stanford letter, $14,760. You win. That's right, because <laughs> the number was higher, right? Because the number was higher, and I had no idea The difference that Stanford, between the institutions, right? Yeah, I didn't Amazing. know that Stanford was like Harvard level of right. a university. Because, you know, we're in Mississippi, as far as we knew, the top three universities in the world were Harvard, MIT, and Georgia Tech. And that's how I went. West Coast schools, you know about them because of football. 
right? right. <laughs> I get it. I yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and so, you know, when people talk to me, I get the sense they think that my life was like, okay, I'll make a decision to pursue this career, and, <laughs> you know, but it, it didn't unfold that way. I had no idea when I stepped on Tougaloo's college campus what college even was. The breadth of majors that existed, I had no idea of. But, I, the, but the interesting thing is somebody had enough foresight mm. to know that talent is dispersed. Yeah. But opportunity is not. Mm, absolutely. And I'm going to go to places where people aren't looking yeah. for talent. Yeah. And I bet you I'll find some. Mm-hmm. And that's the Mason story. Wow. George Mason probably does that as good as any place in the whole country. Wow. And that's the that has attracted me here. Yeah. That's powerful. That's the, it yeah. is. Without question. Yeah. Yeah. Without question. And you know, that's what happened to me over and over. So when people say, ask for a quick summary of how I made it, I say hope, hustle, and help. <laughs> and without that help, like when I say it, I wanted the state science fair. Well, let me tell you, we didn't even know science fairs existed at my high school. And these two professors from the University of Southern Mississippi showed up my junior year and it was like, oh, this thing exists and you guys should participate. And so we went and none of us had any idea. You know, we had our school science fair. We went to the district one down at a, or regional down at University of Southern Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I was the only person to get an award that first year. I got an honorable mention. The next year we went back, I came in first place in the state in physics. My classmate, who just passed away in early 2020, Antra McGee, he came in third place at regionals, went to state with me. And this other, I think he came in second place in engineering, went to state with me. And this young kid who was like a sophomore named Aristotle Bender, who actually passed away much earlier than all of us, like late 20s, he came in third place and three of us went to state. That year. And wow. we were the only all-black high school in Mississippi, of which they have many, that even participated in the state science fair, that even had anybody make it to the state science fair. That's amazing. Well, look, this has been a spectacular conversation. And I really, really want to thank you. I, I, I literally have two, three pages <laughs> worth of additional questions or things to ask you. Uh, well, we can do it so, again anytime you're oh, ready. Oh, man, I would love the opportunity. So all of you listening, you see why this guy is so great, and we're just ecstatic to have him here at George Mason. Fascinating stuff, but we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you, Mr. You know, President. Thank you. Look, I want to thank Hakeem Olushehi, an affiliate faculty member at George Mason University, and one of the nation's premier astrophysicists for his time and expertise. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.